hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It is a distinguished honor for me to have on the program Dr. Robert Clancy, someone who I've met, become a great friend in Australia, in Sydney. He's got a story background. Just briefly, he went to the University of Sydney. Uh, and in Australia, they receive uh, an MBBS. He went on from there to Monash, uh, another great university in Australia, in Melbourne, and received his PhD in autoimmunity. Uh, he traveled to Canada, was at McMaster University in Hamilton and uh, set up programs in infectious disease and inflammatory bowel disease, returned to uh, Australia, set up the entire immunology program for the uh, Prince Albert Hospital, really mucosal immunity program, and then became a foundation chair in the Newcastle School of Medicine, the first problem-based school of medicine in Australia. He's worked there 30 years in mucosal immunity, now an independent uh, researcher. He's an entrepreneur. He's a man of the world doing great things, travel. Dr. Clancy, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you very much, Peter. It's a great pleasure to be here. Our audience, I think right now, thinks you're the most interesting man in the world, and I think you are. Why don't you just update us from uh, your position at Newcastle? What have you been doing since that time? I know you and your wife are, are close and you've done terrific things, but just give us an idea of, of, of where you've been and what you've done. Well, well, Peter, I, I think you can probably relate to the fact that when you spend your whole life as an academic uh, working in major hospitals uh, and, and in universities, which is an enormous privilege, you, you get to a stage, and I turned 60, and I said, you know, I, I want to keep doing these things, but there are other things that I want to do. Um, I was very lucky. I, uh, As a medical student, I was one of two Australians that uh, uh, was invited down to Antarctica and so I, I developed a very early interest in Antarctica, and this really followed uh, from uh, Do uh, Dr. Bird, who was the great Amer American Antarctic explorer. And so we do a lot of things that we follow America in. And so I was the the, uh, the guinea pig to go down as a scout. So I, I developed a, a long-term interest, which uh, led to uh, research programs where there was a story about that. Uh, people who spent a lot of time in Antarctica would die from bizarre cancers. And uh, I, I kept that in mind. And as an immunologist, I, I thought, well, what happens? And so we set up a program and we were able to show that when, when people winter, uh, spend the whole winter in Antarctica, they, they actually turn off their immune response, uh, which makes a lot of sense. And um, it, it fits with a lot of things we see back home. Um, we work with the Institute of Sport in Australia and um, in the 2000 Olympics, for example, we were able to change the program of, um, I shouldn't be telling you this because you've probably got some American swimmers listening, Peter, but we were able to change their training program so that every swimmer uh, in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney uh, swam to their predicted best, which had never been done before. And we were able to do that because of the Antarctic work and showing how uh, physical and mental uh, stresses can turn off the immune response and lead to reactivation of the 
uh, what you call infectious mononucleosis, we call the glandular fever, Epstar-Barr virus. Um, Can I ask so you a question, though? That you just made me think of something. You know, people have always said, well, they call it a cold, that we get a cold because it's cold weather outside. I tell you, my mother-in-law is for sure thinks that, you know, upper respiratory tract illnesses, are, you know, have due to the weather. But you mentioned people in Antarctica through the winter losing their immunity. Is there any truth to the fact that there is a, a temporal change in immune strength against respiratory pathogens? Just, just those who live, you know, not at the equator where you know, above or below the equator. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, I, I think I think the truth is that, uh, and we were able to show in different pat, uh, different um, st uh, strategic studies we did that various stresses, be they physical or be they mental, can turn off the body's uh, mucosal immune system. Um, and, and we were actually working in in um, Antarctica with Cape Canaveral because there's a lot of similarity between the questions that people ask in isolation in Antarctica and isolation in space. And so they gave us the, the, the tools to investigate why these people in Antarctica uh, actually turn off their immune response. And uh, just this week, I, I was talking to colleagues who uh, are looking at the uh, same issue now on the Man to, to Mars program. Uh, and we were talking about uh, what we did in Antarctica and what they could do uh, in that program by monitoring whether or not the same issue uh, can occur. So I, I think you're perfectly right. Your mother-in-law and mine must have been the same, Peter, because I got that, <laughs> I got that from a very early age. And the, the, the bottom line is that uh, the stresses, or physical stresses, uh, be they uh, excessive exercise, cold, can actually make the, the antibodies in the lining of the airways reduce they, they go down and we know that that is a, a sign of the turning off of the mucosal protection and if you've got various um, contained viruses like the glandular fever virus or sorry infectious monovirus which is kept for the for life 90% uh, of people uh, have this particular virus in the cells that hmm. line the the uh, upper airways Wow, 90% of us have Epstein-Barr. Americans would know this as infectious mononucleosis. Well, what percent actually clinically have had mono when they were children? Well, that's that's a very good question. Uh, most of them would not identify having had that. Um, uh, of course, those that have had mono uh, as a child or, or a young adult uh, will remember it with uh, with clarity because it's quite a nasty disease. But many people get it asymptomatically and it just goes into the cells, in, integrates with the, the DNA of the cell, your own cells. And it's contained there like a block of concrete around the cell by immune cells known as T lymphocytes, uh, hmm. which are the, the particular arm of the immune response that, that um, is what we call cell-mediated immunity. And uh, if you weaken that, and you can weaken that with stress, there, and the stress can be physical or it can be mental, then you get a reactivation of this. And it's it's certainly the basis of many patients who get chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, you find that um, as a clinical immunologist, uh, we used to see, it uh, used to drive us crazy. Every clinic you'd have at least one or two new patients with chronic fatigue. Uh, it's a terrible condition. And uh, in many of these, we could show that there was defective immunity. And um, we followed this in the, the swimmers. 
And uh, it's well known that swimmers often, uh, sort of competitive swimmers, these are the elite swimmers in the Olympics, they would actually reduce their efficiency in the last few days uh, prior to the main meet. And that was because they would turn off their immune response under the, the stress of the time. And we could change that by changing the training program um, over time. And it was quite interesting because after the Sydney Olympics, um, all the physiologists that we worked with got very high paid jobs in England because the English were very impressed. They, they ran the next Olympics and they were very impressed by how all our swimmers had done so well in, in that 2000. Uh, it, it's so true. I think the Australians really cleaned up. Uh, usually, it's, usually, it's Australia versus America in these uh, in these meets. But let, let's let's have you lay out for our audience when you say mucosal immunity, the the nose and the throat. Uh, can, can you just lay out the major components of immunity? Our defenses against pathogens. What's there? Uh, what are the cell types? The structures? and the commensal organisms uh, that we that we know about sure sure uh if you uh, most people who do immunology uh and that includes unfortunately most of my colleagues learn about immunology as it works inside the body they learn about antibodies and cells circulating in the bloodstream but if we go way back to world war one uh quite an amazing czech uh, called bezredka uh, who worked at the um the uh a Pasteur Institute in Paris said, look, I think that sometimes we're getting these people, these soldiers getting uh, Shigella dysentery, a very nasty um, blood-containing diarrhoea uh, that was killing more people on the battlefield than bullets. And he said, I think this disease, which only goes as far as the lining of the gut, the mucosa, I think there may be a special immune system. So he started immunising these soldiers by feeding killed bacteria. Now, it sounds pretty basic and pretty crude, but it worked. And no one quite understood this until uh, in the um, late 1960s, uh, Tom Tomasi, uh, an American working in upstate uh, New York, Tom uh, actually took a new antibody called IgA. Now, all the antibodies that had been looked at before were a particular structure called IgG. And uh, Herrmann's, uh, a Belgian who uh, was working in the States, identified this new type of antibody. And Tom actually found that this antibody was the major antibody in the secretions of the body. That is the secretions in the gut and in the airways. And this identified a new system, which was called the mucosal immune system. But that was the first step. The second step was where did these cells come from? Then another, a very, very smart, a very nice uh, American guy called John Sebra um, showed that little knobs of lymphoid tissue, which were stuck in the small bowel called payas patches. And some of your listeners uh, um, will, will remember if they did anatomy that they had to learn about these funny little knobs that were in the mucosa of the small bowel. And they were called payas patches. And quite frankly, none of us had any idea what the payas patches did. Well, John Sebra took these with his PhD uh, student, Susan Craig, and they were able to take, grind those payas patches up in a, a rabbit, inject them back into a rabbit that had been irradiated so it couldn't by itself contribute to anything that was found, and found that the IgA-containing cells were appearing in the mucosa, the lining tissue of the gut, 
In other words, he was able to show that the Payas patch was the source of um, the IgA antibodies which characterised the mucosal immune response that Tom Tomasi had identified. And so we had two of the three steps that were required to understand this system. And the third step, and I was extremely lucky because I'd just finished my own PhD in, uh, in Melbourne, and I went to work with John Benenstock, a remarkable man who uh, um, was at McMaster University. And uh, John at the time uh, had said, well, wait a second, I wonder if the same thing's occurring in the lung. And so uh, I was one of the team that, that um, was working with John on, on the rabbits. And, and because I was an Australian, John said, look, all Australians hate rabbits. So your main job is to kill the rabbit when we're finished with uh, uh, with the experiment. <laughs> so I, I felt that I had a critical role in the development of what became known as the common mucosal system because what we were able to show was that the same little knobs that occurred in the rabbit bronchus, the, the main tube that took uh, gases in and out of the gas exchange apparatus of the lung, um, he we were able to show that those cells also recirculated when we injected them back into an irradiated rabbit and the the um, the cells would appear in the lining of the gut and the lining of the bronchus. Uh, and so the idea that there was a system uh, was uh, established, which John called the common mucosal system. And that changed the way uh, we started thinking about how the uh, airways became protected because uh, I then went back to Australia initially at uh, Prince Alfred Hospital, as you mentioned, uh, and then uh, up to Newcastle, uh, where I set up the the mucosal mucosal uh, the Newcastle mucosal immunology group, and we then took those ideas and developed them in humans, and we were able to show that the way man protects its airways, and this is terribly relevant to COVID, uh, the way man protects the airways uh, is by doing it all off-site, all the generation of the cells are going to make antibody and the two cells occurs in the payas patches. Uh, the payas patches know what to do because we're all swallowing at least a cup full of secretions from the airways and we don't know it. While we're sitting here talking, um, Peter, uh, we're swallowing secretions which contain all the viruses and bacteria that would be in the airways. And they go down into the gut to the payas patch, make uh, activate the cells which then go through the bloodstream and they've got little postage stamps which say take me to the bronchus of the lung and so that's how they get it, it's as though the lungs have one job and that's gas exchange they want to put oxygen into the blood and take carbon dioxide out and so it parks off-site this development system uh, and this uh, if we get round to it today um, th this is critically important in understanding how uh, COVID for example is handled uh, because uh, it's a imperfect system and what we might get to is how we can make it perfect and reduce the chance of people uh, not getting severe COVID. Well, let's uh, lay out the various types of cell types, uh, the lining cells and the various immune cells because so many of our listeners have been trying to weed through social media and manuscripts. So why don't you kind of lay out, you know, lay out the terminology for us? Okay, uh, well, let, let's start. Let's start with the pious patch. Um, the pious patch is like a lymph node, 
And many of the listeners will know that the lymph node is where the systemic immune response, the IgG antibody, the T cells that circulate in blood, they're all generated from special lymphoid structures. They're called lymphoid structures because they contain cells called lymphocytes. Now, to, to keep it very simple, there are two main types of lymphocytes in the lymph nodes for the systemic immune response, the pious patch for the mucosal immune response. And the one that everyone knows about is the B lymphocyte because the B lymphocyte is the one that makes antibody in the lymph node. It makes an IgG antibody in the pious patch. It makes the IgA antibody, and which is where the IgA antibody is going to circulate uh, or the, the B cells that make it will circulate in the blood and populate all the lining mucosal surfaces of the body. So that's, they're the main cells that are in the pious patch, but there are areas next to those, and they're quite defined anatomical structures, which are called the T-cell areas. Now, the T-cell areas um, produce T-cells, which are the mediators of what we call cell-mediated immunity. They do the immune protection job in a slightly different way. Uh, antibodies um, do one job and the T-cells do another. And a very particular type of T-cell <clears throat> is actually circulating from the pious patch, which at the time we started working on this, uh, we didn't know uh, existed because we were really surprised that when we set up animal models in, in rats, um, we, we didn't do, we left the rabbit, we moved to the rat, a little easier to work with. And the, the in the rat, that if you take, um, we were able to show that not only B cells making the IgA antibody were part of this common mucosal system, but one of the first things we did, we showed using a, a special technology, we were able to show that T lymphocytes also circulated in this pattern. So we had a, a, a composite integrated mucosal immune system where you've got uh, antigen coming, antigen being the, the particular structure that stimulates the specific cells, and uh, we've got antigen coming down, um, being swallowed from the, the secretions of the lung, um, going into the pious patch, stimulating the T cells and the B cells, which then migrate through the bloodstream uh, and have postage stamp receptors um, or, or um, various structures that will bind to receptors uh, in the uh, small vessels of the bronchus, uh, just as other cells will go to the gut or the bladder or the reproductive system. So the whole system works together uh, based on the specificity of this receptor system. Uh, and so you've got B cells and T cells appearing uh, in, the, uh, in the mucosal tissues. Now, the very important thing that needs to be understood and the big difference between, one of the many differences, but a very big difference between the systemic immune response occurring within the body and the mucosal immune response occurring at the surface of the airways is the presence of another cell type called T regulation cells. Now, when I started working on this, we called them T suppressor cells. And we're actually the first to show that in the airways, there's a very, very powerful down regulation system. In other words, if you, let's go back and think about what you're trying to do in the airways and what you're trying to do in the bloodstream. In the it, it, the body wants to be antigen free. It does want it wants no bacteria, no viruses circulating in the bloodstream, and so the systemic immune response is charged 
with the responsibility of keeping inside the body sterile. You do not want bacteria and virus because that threatens life. And so the systemic immune response is pretty much untethered. It has uh, a, a big green go sign saying, get rid of this bacteria, get rid of this virus. Now, that's very different at the mucosal sites because you think about it, that uh, every mucosal site is loaded up with bacteria and viruses, which we call now the microbiome. Now, even that term microbiome is only 20 years old. Uh, and so uh, there's enormous, in, probably the biggest interest in medicine these days is this microbiome. And of course, they, people focus on the gut because it's like an extra organ. Uh, they talk about the gut-brain axis and all the various things these bacteria can do. But what you don't want them to do is invade the body and uh, take over the body. And so you need an immune system that recognises the the, the fact that there are going to be lots of bacteria and viruses there, but at the same time controls it from getting out of hand. And so you can't have an IgG-type uh, systemic immune response because it would blow the mucosa up uh, like a hand grenade going off because that's its job. Its job is to keep everything sterile. And so part of the very sophisticated system that developed in mucosal immunology was a regulation system so that it didn't get out of control. And that is mediated by these very special cells, which we called T-suppressor cells back in the 70s and 80s, and now they're known as T-reg cells, T-R-E-G, because they produce a particular type of hormone or cytokine called IL-10. Uh, not gonna, let's not confuse ourselves, let alone other people with terminology, Peter, but that it produces a, a factor which turns off the other T cells and B cells so that you do not get uh, an overarching over amount of mucosal immune response. Now, the more you stimulate the system, the more you stimulate the suppressor cells. And that, of course, if we get on to COVID, is the huge problem people have run into uh, without, for some strange reason, realising that uh, if you keep stimulating and injecting um, cells that have come from mucosal immunity, then you're going to get a dominance of suppression and you turn off the immune response and you get more infections. But that, that's another story. Uh, so we, we've got now, I think we've sort of gone through the, the big bits of mucosal immunology. Well, you know, I, I have some additional questions. Uh, you know, as a doctor, I, I see and examine patients. I, you know, I take a look in the nose and the ears. Uh, you know, I see tonsils. There's adenoids, submandibular nodes, some mental lymph nodes, supraclavicular nodes. Can you talk a little bit about the, the lymphoid follicles in the head and neck and how do they play a role? Yeah, there's a, they're a sort of hybrid group in a sense, uh, Peter. You've got uh, it, it, the, the collective name to all that lymphoid tissue around the, the pharynx, that's the, the nasopharynx, the space behind the nose, and the oropharynx, the space behind the, the mouth. Um, there is lymphoid tissue, which we know some of it as, lymph, uh, as adenoids up near the, the nose and uh, tonsils, is called Waldeyer's ring. That's a terrible name, but I guess there was some chap called Waldy Eye that first described it way back in the 16th century. Um, now, th this has a job which is somewhere between systemic lymph nodes and somewhere between pious patches, but it can do exactly the same thing. That when you, say, get a virus, let's make it a COVID virus, and it comes into the nose, uh, it will be 
perceived and taken up into not only will it be dumped into the uh, into the gut to provide the protection against the lower airways, but it'll also do the same by going to the tonsils, the adenoids, um, and the mucosal-related lymphoid tissues in the upper uh, tract. And that will produce um, uh, the same type of IgA cells which will circulate. Um, there is a carpet of, of special cells called dendritic cells that will make the T-suppressor cells. So you get the same sort of pattern of immune response that will occur in the nose and the pharynx uh, using a slightly different system to the one that's relevant to the lower airways. That's fascinating. Now, tell us about the mucociliary carpet. <laughs> um, are you getting me out of my comfort zone a bit here, Peter? But if, and I bet you know more about it than I do. But but what we know is that the this and this is really important that the 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 lining cells of the tube that takes gases down to the alveoli or the gas exchange part of the lung, they produce mucus and secretions all the time. And they do this for a lot of reasons, everything from uh, providing surfactant to stop the, the lungs collapsing, uh, changing the, uh, um, the surface tension uh, of those lower airways to uh, mucus, which traps the bacteria. And it, it needs to get from the lower airways up into the pharynx and then get dumped into the gut. And there is um, a, a set of tiny um, hair cells that, that have little tiny hairs called cilia, which have a very prescribed pattern of beating. So they, they actually move the, the layer of mucus up, all, always moving upwards. And uh, what happens in people who smoke uh, or, or people who get uh, chronic bronchitis is that that action of cilia action, that carpet of, of cilia, uh, fails to do its job properly. And so you get pooling of secretions. They're not getting brought up uh, as they should in an imperceptible way. And then, as I said, about 100 mils or a cupful get tipped into the gut every day without us even knowing about it. And so um, if it's defective in people who smoke, then the secretions don't get brought up in a coordinated way and they pool. And so you cough to get use the cough reflex to overcome the defect in not having the proper physiology. And that's why people, yeah, so people who, who are smokers will make more secretions and clear them less well. And so that, I see. So that explains the smoker's cough in the morning. The smoker's then. cough, exactly. Yeah. Well, this has been terrific. We are having probably a graduate school level, advanced medical school level, I think PhD nursing level, Discussion, conversation, a convo with Dr. Robert Clancy, Sydney, Australia, uh, and just absolutely fascinating. We're going to take a break now here for uh, our sponsors. You're listening to the McCullough Report. I want to talk to you about an important trio of products I routinely recommend to my patients with long COVID syndrome, and that is the Healthy Cell Trio of the Immune Super Boost. Focus and Recall, and REM Sleep Supplement, all three of them. The Immune Super Boost in the morning helps charge the body with essential uh, vitamins and nutrients that help an individual fight off these frequent recurrent infections of other viruses that people get during the long COVID syndrome. The Focus and Recall, also taken in the morning, helps address brain fog, uh, this general difficulty in finding words, uh, irritability, 
uh, it works wonderfully to help clear up some of the uh, neurological and neuropsychiatric manifestations of long COVID syndrome. And then lastly, at night, the Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement helps you go to sleep, stay asleep, get normal sleep architecture, so the next day you wake up well rested and ready to go. So again, three products all work together very well in long COVID, post COVID syndrome, the immune super boost, focus and recall, and REM sleep supplement. There are three products. Go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, and click on the banner for, uh, for Healthy Cell to get 20% off your first order. And you'll be ordering all three of these. They'll come in three separate boxes. They are utilize uh, microgel technology. They work very rapidly, and I'm relying on them in my practice with great results. So go check out Healthy Cell. Go to America Out Loud Talk Radio and click on the banner bar for a discount on your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is One Color Report. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. This is heavy-duty immunology, pulmonology, gastroenterology, and we're learning from Dr. Robert Clancy, Sydney, Australia. You can tell by the excitement in his voice uh, so much of this work that's been described, him and his groups over time have really shown this, this fascinating connection between lymphoid tissue that's fairly distal in the GI tract, communicating with the respiratory system, how we do swallow pathogens uh, all the time. In, in, in a sense, we're swallowing mucus all the time. And then this first line of defense in the, in the nose and the mouth this is so relevant because all of us have had common colds. We've had other infections. Dr. Clancy, can you lay out a little bit more uh, to us about this controversy that seems to pop up all the time of germ versus terrain theory as it applies to the nasopharynx? Germ? That's a new term for me, but what, germ versus terrain. Right. So what's, you know, what's been said is uh, on one extreme – uh, of it, uh, the germ theorists 
say that we're germ-free and that you uh, know we're, we walk around like like we're like in a sterile bubble and if somebody coughs on us we're in trouble the, the terrain theory says we're loaded with different uh, different <laughs> bacteria fungi viri and, right, and it's when it's when we have a ripple in our immune defense system is when we get sick. Where do you lay in that continuum? Okay, I, I think that the, the, the germ people, uh, I thought they're all dead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I mean, one of the most, to me, one of the most exciting areas, and I, I gave a talk at an international meeting just early this week uh, to, to pain doctors of all people. They, and the pain doctors wanted to know about the microbiome. Now, the, you could not give this talk 20 years ago. In fact, the, the word microbiome was only first used in 2001. And prior to that, uh, there was very, very you know, scattered knowledge. But what it's all about is, and Peter, you, you remember when we were students, I was a student a little before you, I think, but certainly when I was a student, we were told the lung was sterile. And uh, of course, that is totally wrong. Uh, every mucosal surface has a community of bacteria, virus, fungi. And that community, and this is really important in the airways, that community comes initially from the upper airways because you're breathing in uh, the, the bugs all the time. It, it comes and it begins early in life and it develops in the upper airways. And though those bugs progressively go down the airways all the way down to the alveolar. That's the area where you get gas exchange. But the if you if you look at the microbiome, this collection of bugs, uh, in a, say a normal healthy person like presumably you and me, um, you'll find that it's very different in the airways at the bottom end to the top end in the pharynx and around the tonsils. And that's not because there wasn't a common origin. It's just that the local environment changes. Some bugs will grow very well in one part of the airway. Uh, even within the, the lower airways, you get pockets of difference. Uh, but in that individual, those pockets of difference are very stable. So your microbiome will be different to mine in a number of ways, but your one will be the same if you look at it now and you look at it in a month's time. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, that microbiome uh, does not contain what we call pathogens. If you become a smoker or if you uh, develop chronic airways disease, the microbiome, this, this mix of bugs, which is a perfectly normal physiological thing, uh, changes and particular bugs become dominant. So two things happen. The, the actual, um, the, the, the spread of variation becomes less. You get a constriction of the type of bug and you get emergence of certain bugs in great numbers. And the main one in the airways is called Haemophilus influenzae. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of your listeners will know about this because they've given Haemophilus influenzae vaccines uh, to, their, to their children. But what they're actually doing, that's, that's a very different Haemophilus influenzae to the one that people who smoke or uh, get abnormal uh, microbiomes. Uh, it's the outside of the bug the polysaccharide capsule that allows the haemophilus to penetrate through the mucosa and cause get into the bloodstream and cause uh, conditions like septicemia, uh, meningitis, and um, epiglottitis. So uh, that systemic type of infection requires this particular bug to have a sugar coating. Um, now, the ones that you see uh, all the time in the person with smoker's cough, for example, is called non-typable. Uh, 
and it's called non-typable because when you type the Haemophilus influenzae, you're actually typing the sugar coating. So you can have sugar coating A, B, C, D, etc. And the vaccine you give the children is the sugar coating, not the actual uh, bug itself. So mm -hmm. that's a little bit away from what we're talking about. But, but, but along these lines, uh, you know, when you have an, one of the most common causes of community-acquired pneumonia in my specialty, internal medicine, is pneumococcal pneumonia. Right. Uh, how does that develop? Isn't the pneumococcus a commensal organism? Isn't it in the sinuses and in the mucociliary carpet all the time? Yes, it can be. Um, it, it's, but it'll be in very small numbers. And uh, very often uh, it's in a less invasive form. Uh, in the normal microbiome, it's very often it's not there much there at all. Uh, but, but under certain conditions, it will come. If you get a virus infection, you suddenly find you've got pneumococcus. Where you really see it are people in disadvantaged communities. I, I do some work with uh, Aboriginal groups in, in Australia. Uh, these kids will be having pneumococcus and haemophilus influenzae in their upper airways, in their nasopharynx, by one month of age. And, and you walk around the communities. Uh, I, I did a lot of work in New Guinea. And you see these lovely little kids running around one and two years of age, and they're all got mucus coming out of their nose. Uh, hmm. And that's reflecting this uh, abnormal colonisation. And, of course, uh, these are the kids that get middle ear infections, deafness. Um, they get recurrent acute uh, airways infections. They go on and get bronchiectasis in their teens, chronic airways disease when they're adults, uh, and hmm. the, sad, the sad story goes on. So you're quite right. Um, in circumstances, you will get pneumococcus, and it can really be considered part of this microbiome in normal, but um, I think you'd like to have a microbiome that doesn't contain it. Now, when uh, uh, when there's children that have recurrent sinusitis and these uh, upper airway infections that are, you know, are, are prominent and, uh, you know, doctors do an evaluation and we find immunoglobulin deficiencies, how often do various immunoglobin deficiencies really play a role? Um, <clears throat> probably more often than we think. And the reason I'm saying that is that when you and I see a person with, uh, say, uh, a couple of episodes of pneumonia or they get recurrent pyogenic infections, you know, producing pus somewhere, we say, well, we better check their, their antibodies. And we measure the whole lot of the IgG, uh, there are three main classes of antibody that run around in the blood. There's the IgG, IgM, and some IgA. Uh, and so we know IgA in a particular form uh, is the dominant antibody in secretions. IgG uh, is the dominant antibody in blood. And, and we find uh, occasionally people who have developed uh, recurrent sinusitis and particularly bronchiectasis when they get destruction of the lower airways and the, the bronchi, the conducting um, tubes in the, in the lung become destroyed and they blow out and you basically have uh, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, a great big um, blowout of, of a hole, if you like, down the end uh, and they get bronchiectasis. Now, a number of those patients will have an immune deficiency because they've been unable to cope and control the microbiome. Um, the what's what's more common, and uh, you know, I, I saw a patient just yesterday um, with uh, long COVID, and we're seeing so much of these long COVIDs. And the issue is, why would someone 
have this persistent viral infection. And what we're finding in a number, and this particular chap I saw yesterday, had a total IgG level in his blood normal. But when we looked at the subgroups, the, the subclasses of IgG, two of them were about half normal. So his total was normal. But when you broke it up into into subcomponents, uh, there was a clear deficiency of two of the four uh, subclasses of IgG. Now, you can keep taking that, and you, you find that some people genetically never quite develop uh, the right antibody for a particular bug, and they start getting recurrent infections with that particular bug. Uh, and so you have a, a complete spectrum of deficiency of antibody, ranging from all the immunoglobulins being reduced which we've known about for about 70 years, um, to subclasses to antibody-specific. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, a common vaccine that we recommend in internal medicine is the pneumococcal vaccine, and it's uh, developed uh, over time. But one of the ones uh, you know advanced for years and years and years was the 13-valent conjugate yeah. pneumococcal vaccine, and now there's actually pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, the PPSV23, so there's 23. <clears throat> but that's a shot in the arm. When we give a shot in the arm, is IgA actually found in the sinuses uh, and in the... Um, very very in good question. I think the, the various polysaccharide infection, um, the various polysaccharide uh, antibodies in the blood um, are there to stop escape of the encapsulated, the polysaccharide encapsulated pneumococcus from escaping from the airway into the gas exchange. Now, if you can imagine in front of you, uh, if you like a flask with a tube and then there's the, the bulgy bit at the bottom, the bulgy bit at the bottom is the gas exchange. That is looked after by the systemic immune response, whereas the tube is looked after by the mucosal immune response. And the job of the mucosal immune response is to stop stop anything, bug, be it bacteria or virus, escaping from that bronchial compartment into the gas exchange compartment. If it gets into the gas exchange compartment, then you have to use, you start using the systemic immune response. And what in fact happens in pneumonia with pneumococcus, it, it's perfectly all right if it sits in small numbers in the upper airways or in the bronchus. Uh, it might cause a little bit more sputum and you get a bit of cough and sputum as you would with a, a chronic bronchitis patient. But you're not going to get pneumonia until it escapes. And once it escapes, it engages a very different form of immune response, the systemic immune response. And when you really think about it, the, the damage that's occurring in the uh, lower airways, in the gas exchange, the alveoli the little sacs where the oxygen goes in and the carbon dioxide comes out, what's happening there is a hypersensitivity reaction. The IgG antibody binds to this pneumococcus. The IgA antibody hasn't done its job well enough to keep it up in the in the bronchus compartment. It's come down into the uh, where it's going to bind with the IgG, and that activates a sequence of what's known as innate immune systems, particularly a uh, an enzymic system called the complement system, which is aiming to get rid of that organism as quickly as it can. And the difference between the IgG antibody and this process of innate immunity, which is activated by the antibody, is that you lose specificity. 
So the beautiful thing about an antibody is it's absolutely specific for the particular antigen or bug that it's going to make uh, be directed against. But once you start engaging the um, the uh, innate immune system, then it's like a hand grenade going off. And if everything works extremely well, you've got a high antibody because you've been immunized, then that hand grenade will be a very small one and it'll be directed just at that pneumococcus. But if, for example, you haven't been immunized and the pneumococcus gets down, you've only got a small amount of antibody and you've got this catch-up system going, you end up getting an explosive response of this innate immune system of the complement. And the, the, the alveoli, the gas exchange, which are normally empty, fill up with fluid and you get what we call pneumonia. So pneumonia, in a sense, is more the response of the body in an inefficient way because it hasn't been good enough at the beginning to cope with the pneumococcal challenge uh, in a highly efficient way. So the hand grenade goes from being a, a, what we call a one-penny bunger <coughs> um, to a real hand grenade causing this explosive inflammatory response. Mm. Does that make sense? Uh, maybe you, you made me think of a patient I have a a man who had a traumatic splenectomy when he was a teenager, and he presented to us in sepsis, and he had a, a pneumococcal pneumonia with an empyema, pericardial, uh, basically a pericardial um, effusion that was uh, purulent and required drainage. It, it was a tremendous save. We saved his life, uh, you know, intensive care unit. Uh, level care for weeks, uh, probably several months in the hospital. Uh, but it's always been said someone who had their spleen taken out is increased risk for encapsulated infections like Haemophilus and pneumococcus. Why is that the case? Uh, well, that's a, a very good question and, and something actually every doctor should know, but sadly uh, they don't because uh, if you've got, if you're taking a spleen out of a person uh, for a particular disease, and the one I, uh, my my PhD was on uh, an autoimmune disease of platelets called ITP, and uh, taking the spleen out is very often done because the spleen, uh, w when the antibody acts against the platelet, one of the three uh, cells circulating in the blood, then the spleen um, recognises that and takes it out of the circulation and destroys it. Um, if you take the spleen out, then you're removing a destroying influence on the sensitized platelets. Uh, now, what we always do is inject them with pneumococcal and haemophilus um, vaccine before you take the spleen out, because the spleen is doing two things. One is it's acting as a filter for the, uh, for the uh, bloodstream, so that if the bug, as they do, gets say the pneumococcus bug or the haemophilus, the, the one with the sugar coating, the haemophilus uh, with the polysaccharide around it, if it escapes and gets into the bloodstream, then you've got a, a second chance of getting rid of it through this filter, which is the spleen. And also the spleen is a major producer of, of antibody as well as the, the lymph nodes. And so uh, you always must, if you, <laughs> you can't do this with traumatic splenectomy, but... Um, all those people should anyway be immunized against uh, pneumococcus and haemophilus influenzae because they are very much at risk of these polysaccharide-coated uh, septicemic uh, episodes. And your patient was very lucky. Must have had a very good doctor, Peter. Yeah, yeah we're lucky he survived. I, you know, I see him in the office. He's a young man, and 
and he feels lucky to be alive, but it just really highlights the importance of the spleen. Now, I have to ask you a practical question. Uh, when I was a child, um, I had recurrent strep throat over and over again. And back in the day, in the 1960s, it was common to do a tonsillectomy. So yeah. my, mom, my mom took me in for a tonsillectomy. Uh, you know, that's not done anymore. What was the role of tonsillectomy and what are the consequences? <laughs> well, I, I had the same experience. Actually, I bet you can remember, I, I was five when I, I had my tonsils <laughs> taken out. Because everyone, I mean, you never got to teens with, with tonsils in right. those days. And and some some guy, I can remember having a chloroform anesthetic at the age of five. It was so yeah. traumatic. Um, do you remember yours? Yeah, it was similar. I think I was seven. I think I distinctly remember that because the smell, you could smell the chloroform. Oh, yeah. terrible. And I can remember I was counting sheep. I honestly can't remember the number I got to, but um, the bottom <laughs> line was that we both ended up losing very important uh, um, uh, lymphoid tissue. I, I've also had my appendix out, so I, I feel really immunologically deprived. Um, no tonsils and, uh, um, look, the, 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 you, you're not... There's no evidence. Well, there's some evidence that people who've had their tonsils out make a slightly less efficient mucosal immune response. But okay. it's, it's it's pretty much. There are people have looked at this. Uh, we actually looked at this years and years ago uh, to some extent. But uh, it, it's pretty minor. Uh, when you think about it, you've got a lot of redundancy. And uh, the body sort of says, okay, we need a certain amount of um, lymphoid tissue in this warty eyes ring. We take out the tonsils. You get a sort of overgrowth of some of the rest of it. So it, it compensates to an extent. Uh, it, it's not the only uh, source of lymphoid tissue. And, and the same with the adenoids, which is the lymphoid tissue that can block the eustachian passage uh, between the upper uh, uh, airways and, and the middle ear cavity. Uh, now, so I, now, I remember uh, staffing emergency rooms uh, years ago, and, and some uh, kids would come in from the rural areas and they'd have a strep throat, but it was so advanced they developed a peritonsillar abscess. And, yeah, and I, yeah. I remember, you know, lancing them and, and having the, the pus come out. How does that actually happen? Um, well, you, you, you know, I guess um, I'm not sure anyone has done too much work on it, but certainly my perception would be that um, you, 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 when you think about it, the tonsil is a sump for bacteria in the same way as a pious patch is. And so it's got a modified... Uh, lining of epithelium that that selectively will take the bugs up and most people cope with it quite well but if you're one of those people that don't cope with it very well then you're actually going to get an infection in if you like the the system that's there to sense it it's it's overwhelmed by it may be a, a particularly nasty pathogenic bug that is more aggressive than the other ones it may be that you've got a slightly reduced capacity to make an immune response uh, i think we understand that much more with the lower airways than we do with the upper airways but look we, we still uh, we still have you know some throat doctors that will take tonsils out in certain patients and you know i i i, I never know what to do I, I don't see a lot of that sort of patient but i do see some and i, I send them to a, a very conservative you know some throat doctor and every now and again he, he, he'll ring me up and say, Clancy, um, uh, when are you going to learn that sometimes you've just got to do without your tonsil? Well, and I, I tell you, I'm a I can't. I can't. My, my, my brother, um, for some reason, got referred for an adult tonsillectomy, my younger brother. 
And I learned one thing about adult tonsillectomies. Boy, what a morbid and, and bloody procedure. He, he went back three times to the ER for post-surgical bleeding. He had to be intubated three times. I mean, it was a disaster. And so I got to tell you, in my clinical practice, I can't remember the last time I referred somebody for a tonsillectomy. Well, I guess as a, as a clinical immunologist, you know, we get people people sent to us with current recurrent infections. And although I don't see too many kids, um, I certainly see uh, some adolescents uh, that will have recurrent upper airways infections. And when you look at their tonsils, they're pretty nasty looking things. And uh, um, I, I will maybe once a year, not very often, send them to an ear, nose and throat, conservative ear, nose and throat uh, surgeon. Uh, for uh, an opinion. And as I said, on one occasion, he got back and rang me up and told me off for, for being so conservative. But you know, what? You, something else that's in the differential of a sore throat and enlarged tonsils and lymphadenopathy, you mentioned it at the, at the top of the show, is Epstein-Barr virus and infectious, infectious mononucleosis. Um, you know, my daughter had such a severe case in college uh, she had a, a, a splenic enlargement, elevation in liver function test. She was severely right, right. dehydrated. She was hospitalized twice. And about nine months after that, she actually had a reactivation syndrome where the yeah, submandibular yeah. lymph nodes became huge. Her lymph nodes looked like two big uh, tennis balls in her neck. It was really uh, striking. Well, why do some people get this reactivation syndrome of EBV? Okay. I, I think uh, if we, it, uh, it's it's basically part of a spectrum that is called a, like a chronic fatigue illness. Um, some people get it all the time. Some people get it under stress. You know, what I'd say to you, Peter, is uh, was she doing an exam at the time? Did she have a breakup in a relationship? Yeah. Um, very often when you get that single relapse, it's um, if you go back to the original infection that your daughter had, uh, she integrated the DNA of the Epstein-Barr virus into her own DNA, and it, and particularly in the lining epithelial cells of the upper airways. Uh, if you look, you'll see that the Epstein-Barr virus is there. And as, as I mentioned very briefly, the body puts around it a concrete uh, encasement of T cells so that it doesn't allow that Epstein-Barr virus in the DNA to transcribe into free virus. But, of course, it can. Now, I'll give you the example. I'll go back to our swimming group. Um, I was asked to see a patient, uh, this is going back uh, 25 years, um, who was number two butterfly swimmer in the world. And only, only, only your very famous uh, American uh, could beat him. And all of a sudden, uh, he was number 10. And uh, he'd got recurrent upper airways infections without any bacteria being found. Now, this chap, I was asked, but because I'd done some teaching of the uh, guy who ran the Australian Institute of Sport, he asked me to come down and see this patient because uh, it's very important in high-level swimming to be good enough to get into the final, which means I think you've got to be in the top eight in the world. And he was number 10. So this was a big, big problem. And when we looked at him, he actually had an impaired salivary antibody response. His IgA was quite low in his saliva. Now, we weren't the first to show this. Again, it was the same Tom Tomasi that I mentioned before, uh, working with a PhD student who happened to be 
an Australian physiotherapist, um, found that uh, you might remember this uh, going way back. That um, he Tom was looking at people who were completing marathons and found that it, it was known that people who ran a marathon would often get recurrent airways infections after it. And when he looked at the, uh, the saliva, the level of IgA dropped to a very low level uh, in a normal person running a marathon, or certainly many of them running marathons. So we followed that story up and we started following all the uh, swimmers in our elite swimming group at the Australian Institute of Sport. Uh, this is in the mid-late 1990s. And what we found was that some of these uh, guys and girls would have low IgA levels in their saliva to start with. They were the ones who would drop it even further in the week or two before the uh, Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games or the major international uh, meetings. Now, at the same time, some of them would have a sore throat. So we started measuring the Epstar-Barr virus and they were pouring out Epstar-Barr virus. I mean, basically every elite swimmer, I can tell you, is seropositive for Epstar-Barr virus. In other words, they've got IgG antibody in their blood and they've experienced an infection, whether or not they knew about it clinically. And so these kids were pouring out Epstar-Barr virus. And this is what uh, led to uh, us getting involved with intervention by changing the training program uh, so that wow. they less physical stress. Now, um, what we found was that we actually, I shouldn't tell you, I know we, we did publish it, so it's in, in the... Uh, we, 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 I'm going to ask you to get to the short end of this because we're going to have to end our interview here. Just finish it up. Okay. Um, what the was bottom the line, bottom line is that we could stop the Epstar-Barr virus and the T-cell deficiencies in these kids by changing the training so that we kept the load of training but distributed over a longer time rather than short, sharp bursts, and we treated them with an acyclic, a specific antiviral uh, for the Olympics so they didn't uh, excrete their Epstar-Barr virus. How that got through the Ethics Committee back in 2000, I have no idea, but it did. Wow, this has been such a fascinating interview. We're out of time, Dr. Clancy. I've learned so much. Wildire's ring, Pyre's patches, secretory <laughs> IgA, Epstein-Barr virus reactivation, pulmonary pneumocytes, pneumococcal sepsis. We've covered it all. Gosh, the McCullough Report. Dr. Robert Clancy, thank you so much for being on our show. A great pleasure, Peter. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.